Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber and I'm sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray and Anne Miller. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that's my fact this week. My fact is that Scottish poet William McGonagall's writing was so bad, a circus hired him to give poetry readings under the condition that audiences could pelt him with eggs as he read. <laughs> and he, he agreed to do that. He agreed. He accepted the job. <laughs> he was paid 15 shillings per performance, and uh, he was actually slightly on hard times. So he accepted it probably going, well, I need the money. But and then, the eggs, maybe. Yeah. And it wasn't just eggs, was it? It was stale bread as well, flour. He got a lot of products that he could go home with. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the performances were put to an end quite early on, and he was disappointed about that, supposedly. Yeah, weren't they put to an end because they were too riotous? <laughs> it was in, yeah, 1893, the authorities banned them because they were getting so out of control. People were just wildly enthusiastic about pelting him. He was probably just pretty chuffed to get an audience, though. He was quite keen to spread his poetry regardless of how much anyone wanted to hear it so he was like great they love me yeah just a tiny bit of background for anyone who hasn't heard of William McGonagall this is a Scottish poet uh, he was born in either 1825 or 1830 it's a bit disputed and he was famous very very famous for the terribleness of his poems <laughs> can I read out just so we know yeah. what we're dealing with so one of his most yeah. famous poems was the Tay Bridge disaster where a bridge had collapsed and lots of people have been killed it starts off beautiful railway bridge of the silvery tay alas i am very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away on the last sabbath day of 1879 which will be remembered for a very long time <laughs> that's the level of poetry we're dealing with and i'm sure it comforted the bereaved family members <laughs> so one of, he was a temperance campaigner and hated alcohol and stuff was teetotal and he blamed the fact that no one liked his poetry on alcohol so he said they're all too drunk to be able to appreciate it but it does kind of imply that you just it was the kind of thing you got really pissed and then said should we go and watch some of my yeah. <laughs> but the last show at the fringe at 3am yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. He started very late in life, didn't he? So he was about 50, give or take, because we don't know exactly when he was born. So he was, what was he before that? Was he working? I thought he was looming and weaving. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. Didn't he think he heard a voice saying to him, like, right, right, you must write? So he was like, well, this is what I'm going to do. And then yeah. the fact of whether he was good or not didn't really come into the equation. Yeah. yeah. And he really believed in himself as well. He once tried to read poetry to Queen Victoria and he sent them a letter to the palace saying, I would like to read. And they said, no, it's okay. Thank you very much. That's <laughs> fine. So he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll just walk there. I'll walk all the way from Dundee to Balmoral to perform to Queen Victoria. He did. He arrived at the castle and they said, genuinely, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> and he had to walk all the way back. <laughs> Didn't get to do it. it got 50, refused to miles or so that he yeah, walked. Yeah, Yeah, he introduced himself as the Queen's poet when he got there. <laughs> he was a massive fan of Queen Victoria. There were loads of assassination attempts on her throughout her life, none mm. of them successful. And after one of them, he wrote a poem in tribute to the failed assassination attempt, which kicked off like this. God prosper long our noble queen, and long may she reign. Maclean he tried to shoot her, but it was all in vain. For God he turned the ball aside, Maclean aimed at her head, and he felt very angry because he didn't shoot her dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh... <laughs> 
It's quite nice. I should add, we were reading these on National Poetry Day here in the oh, UK. Yeah. Happens to be celebrating as yeah. we're recording. He was always being victims of hoaxes. It was so sad, but also kind of okay because he seemed oblivious to it. There was the famous hoax when a group of students sent him a thing in the post saying that he'd won the Order of the Grand Knight of the Holy Order of the White Elephant, which was an extremely important Burmese <laughs> title. And it was a title that was given by King Thibor of Burma for his amazing poetry. And they called him William Topaz in that. And he thereafter made his name William Topaz McGonagall. You're kidding. Which That's was not his, his middle name. Yeah, that wasn't his birth name? No. That's I don't believe so. That's the first wow. time it ever wow. seems to get mentioned. I hadn't read that was where it was invented, but that's the first time it's mentioned. Comes in. And then he had this award up on his wall forevermore, thinking that the King of Burma had blessed him. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> so sad. But I think as well, like he had a lot of weird stuff happen, but he did sort of invite some of it. So there's a story about he paid money to play Macbeth in the performance or the Scottish play. Um, and he thought the actor playing Macduff was upstaging him, so he refused to die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just like, carried on. Apparently, that was before he started doing the poetry. Oh, so it was yeah. in his first career. And there was a review of that play. And it's, I think it's one of the earliest times he appears in any write-up. Hmm. But there was a reviewer in the journal who eventually wrote... Uh, that after a, an extremely long sword fight where despite <laughs> being hit multiple times he's not dying um, the reviewer wrote that Macduff resolved the matter in a rather undignified way by taking the feet from under the principal character so he had to be rugby tackled <laughs> on stage, stage. Yeah. <laughs> he was almost never paid to write a poem it all came from public readings but the very few times he was paid was when he wrote advert poems for things so oh. Beecham's you know the Beecham's pills the, the cough Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so when they were launched, they were kind of cure-all. They were meant to cure absolutely everything. But they didn't really have anything in them. They had aloe, ginger, and soap. That was what was in them. Soap? Yeah. <laughs> so for a fee, he wrote uh, the following. What ho, sickly people of high and low degree? I pray ye all be warned by me. No matter what may be your bodily ills, the safest and quickest cure is Beecham's pills. It's quite it's good. Yeah. I want some Beecham's right now. Yeah. Just hearing that. How did that start again? What ho, sickly people. <laughs> he frequently did that kind of bang headline at the start of a poem. So he went to New York and his poem there starts... O mighty city of New York, you are wonderful to behold. Your buildings are magnificent, the truth be it told. They were the only things that seemed to arrest my eye, because many of them are 13 stories high. (laughs) It's so weird, isn't it? Because you don't know whether to feel sorry for him or not, because he did seem oblivious and he kept on almost asking for it. So he'd always dress up in full Scottish regalia with, you know, kilt and sporran and stuff. Even on the trip to America, he was dressed like that all the time. (laughs) And the thick skinness means that there are some psychologists who agree with the historian who first suggested he might have been slightly autistic partly based on the fact that he seemed immune almost to this Mm. constant criticism and also his obsessive repetition of stuff so over 60 of his poems begin with the word twas and the phrase (laughs) beautiful to be seen is in about 50 of them and he did really proud of that line Anna (laughs) (laughs) it's an incredible line Shakespeare would have been proud um I found this really interesting and I don't know if this is well known Professor McGonagall is named after William McGonagall yeah and J.K. Rowling has actually confirm that that is the case yeah she said she likes the idea of someone so fabulous being named after someone so absurd didn't she yeah which i thought was because mcgonagall is a 
she's a complex character by the standards of Harry Potter, isn't she? She's not totally good. She can be a bit of a strict old cow sometimes. Oh, well, let's not be saying that. But <laughs> are we not? <laughs> We're not willing to talk Just about that Classic yet. Slytherin sentence from Anna there. Yep. Um, I used to live in Edinburgh, and there's a lot of street names that you recognise from Harry Potter books. And near the statue of Greyfriars Bobby, there's a churchyard, and there's a gravestone for Tom Riddle. Really? Um, yeah, you really? can see the actual. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is that is the exact same graveyard where William McGonagall was buried. Wow. Which I've been to. I've Are you visited. saying William McGonagall was Lord Voldemort? I'm saying I think J.K. Rowling took a quick creative trip <laughs> to the graveyard and bashed out all the names she needed. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that one third of all the hazelnuts in the world go into Ferrero products. Mm. Yeah, so Ferrero Rocher, Nutella, things like this. Tic Tacs, which they also make. How many hazelnuts in Tic Tacs? About 75? Yeah, about one per Tic Tac. 75 Tic Tacs per box. So, yeah, this is is a piece that was published in Forbes recently, and it was a profile of the company, basically, which is a very well-established family firm, basically. It started in the 1930s with one man who had one pastry shop, and it's now become Mm. a, a thing that uses a third of all the hazelnuts in the world. Yeah, they're a big deal. They're a big deal. That's what we're saying. Um, and the, the main owner, uh, he passed away only four years ago, Michel Ferrero. And he was, you know, his fortune was up to 15 billion. I mean, it's... Mm-hmm. He's top 50. Well, the guy now is top 50 richest people in the world. It is massive. But Michel, people always said, was a very, very humble man, didn't they? So he was the guy who basically his dad made the Nutella chocolate but he made it in sort of a loaf that was quite hard and sold it in slices yeah this was in post-war rationing time and he thought a way of sort of recreating chocolates to add hazelnuts instead because there's a chocolate shortage but he, yeah he sold it in slices like bread and he used to give a slice of nutella away free with each loaf of bread as a way of kind of pushing it oh. and then his son uh, michelle added some oil and then it got all spreadable yeah. and the rest is history and it's so confusing because uh nutella was originally sold as pasta. What? Yeah. <laughs> as in its name, it, it yeah. was sold. You bought pasta janduya, and it was a. That's how it was sold. It's because it's paste, right? Must be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they don't get okay. it. So you boil it. Uh, no, it's exactly as Anna was saying. It turns out <laughs> you think you're getting sauce. pasta, and then it's a loaf of bread. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm so confused. Yeah. It's just because because they're Italian. Pasta is just going to be Italian for paste, right? Wait, so it'll be paste. When the Italians say pasta they carbonara, don't, they don't eat pasta like we do at all in Italy. What? It's all spreadable. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know where loads of their factories originally were? Um, they were old. They were also in factories, but um, a lot of the factories they started off with were former Nazi missile factories. What? Yeah, I guess there are a lot of empty ones and they were like well we'll use the space yeah. so that's mm-hmm. it's true grim, quite grim. I, I, yeah, yeah, that's... I mean, the usage rate of Nazi <laughs> missile factories dropped off dramatically yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine looking at the machinery and thinking I think I think we can adjust this just a little bit and make chocolates out of it no also it's amazing how uh, Nutella's managed to shake off the reputation isn't it it's like Volkswagen they're both born of Nazism mm-hmm. and yet somehow it's fine to possess them both are they? it wasn't made that. by Nazis Nutella well it's got the associations hasn't it what's the, so what's the, associ- the, the factories? factories but that's post-war yeah, that's but post-war that, factories but I'm, not, I'm not actually suggesting <laughs> boycott Nutella because <laughs> I think I'll lose one of my food groups if we do <laughs> 
Well, there kind of is a link, I'm afraid, um, oh to Italian fascism. So Pietro, who's the guy who founded the company, yeah. in 1938, he moved to East Africa trying to sell biscuits to Mussolini's troops who were stationed there. Oh, did he? So there's a little bit of a link, but not a, not a full-on link, yeah. obviously. I'd also say in defense of Nutella, didn't, isn't the using hazelnuts was because of the rationing from the war. So it came out of the consequences rather than because of the ideologies. Yes, yes. Fascists didn't make Nutella. I've never claimed that. Nutella, <laughs> please don't sue me. <laughs> um, so hazelnuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three quarters of the world's hazelnuts come from Turkey. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. They've absolutely cornered the market. And a quarter of the world's hazelnuts, mm. so one third of those produced in Turkey, mm. itself three quarters of the total. A quarter of the world's hazelnuts are produced in a single Turkish town. Yeah, hazelnut town. And they had a terrible frost in 2014. Oh no! And a third of the harvest was wiped out, and prices rose by 60 percent. Yeah, this is Ordu, Global isn't hazelnut. it? Yeah, Ordu, exactly. It's. I mean, obviously, it's in the fields around the town. It's not exclusively in the town. But Nutella are trying to smash the cornering the of the market. Yeah, mm. because they want a bit of variety in case there's another frost. Oh, so they're moving into Georgia and Abkhazia. Uh, another traditionally very calm and politically yeah. easygoing mm. region, which right. won't be. So they they prey to a lot of local politics basically. Yeah. But every year they have half a million tons of hazelnut shells oh. to get rid of. What do they do with them? Um, they sell them for cheap heating fuel. Oh, cool, ah. eco. And I can't remember what else they do. Well, here's one thing that the Ferrero people do: mm. they use the hazelnut shells, and they've been testing. And I don't know if this has been put into practice. This was a few years ago. They've been making it into the wrapping that we have for what? yeah. So they've reintegrated it into the packaging to make themselves totally resourceful of all for the... Nutella. No, Ferrero. for Ferrero. Ferrero. Yeah. That, that gold stuff. This is from the project coordinator at Ferrero. We have access to large amounts of residual byproducts, which we realize could be used constructively. Um, so the company's idea was to use the nuts uh, to create the packaging for the chocolates. Hey, if you ever want to know what to call a specific bit of a Ferrero Rocher, mm. I have the answer. Wow. So I was reading about how it goes through the factory <laughs> and, you know, it's got all these amazing devices that, for instance, that sense if it's misshapen and automatically puff a bit of air to knock it off the production line what? and all that funky <laughs> stuff. Um, and then there's a moment where all of Ferrero Rocher is, is this wafer ball, that rounded wafer, oh, yeah. Yeah. which, by the way, took uh, took him, Ferrero, five years, the story goes, to try and hone how to make a wafer curl Apparently, he was in his factory on his own for five wow. years. That's as legend oh, I goes. I never thought of that. Um, <laughs> but he curls the wafer, and then they're in the factory, and they've got hazelnut in them and Nutella spread. Yeah. And before they're dipped in chocolate and hazelnuts, that little ball is called a pickpock. Wow. Just in case. So if you ever suck the chocolate off the outside of a Ferrero Rocher, you can say, I've got a pickpock. So they've got Tic Tacs, pickpocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's very good naming. They should, yeah. they should market that. That's very I don't funny. want to eat one that someone else has taken the chocolate off. That's <laughs> no. true. That's gross. <laughs> I was reading a bit about the fact that this family that created the whole Ferrero uh, empire are incredibly secretive. We were saying humble before, but also incredibly secretive. <laughs> no one knew virtually anything about them. And for a company that was so massive, they never did any real publicity of their own. Their website, uh, it was spotted in the Telegraph back in 2009. This has since changed, so possibly since uh, the, the owner, Michelle, had died. But they only had one financial press release on their website up until 2009, and it was two sentences long. And that's the only thing they ever had. Yeah, he gave one interview, Michelle, in his whole career. And even when he gave that interview, which was right towards the end of it, before he died, he wore dark glasses the whole way through. (laughs) Yeah, Do you think it wasn't actually him? Yeah, you're right. He blatantly sent one of his... Um, send your media savvy. <laughs> yeah, media savvy Oompa Loompa from the factory. Wow. It's still his brother who's in charge. It's now Giovanni. Mm. Um, ah. Yeah. They're basically like real-life Willy Wonkas, but without the 
killing off the children. That's true. Not so killing, but like as as <laughs> leaving. Oh, someone else has joined the sweepstakes to get sued by Nutella. <laughs> I think the, the Royal Dahl estate has just come into. <laughs> You're going to be sued by Harry Potter. What? Why? What? I was. I no, was... That, was, that was Anna again. It's all me. <laughs> because of the graveyard. No, well, that's real. No, but... William McGonagall's buried there, and there is a Thomas Riddle. Oh, yeah. 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 You okay. did claim J.K. Rowling has no imagination. She just wanders <laughs> around graveyards like a creep, stealing her ideas off the gravestones. J.K. Rowling is the greatest writer that our world has ever known. It's too late now, Dan. Oh, man. You've said the words. <laughs> um, I found out something about Shakespeare's Globe, because Shakespeare's Globe was partly built on hazelnut shells. What? Wow. So they were excavating the original one before it was rebuilt. Mm. And what they found, a layer of hazelnut shells... And they assumed that maybe this is the leftovers from people snacking on them. But it turns out that that wasn't the case because they were an ingredient in a kind of mortar. What was called a poor man's mortar. So it was mixed with cinders and ash and it let the rainwater filter through but supported the building. So when they rebuilt the theatre, the theatre sourced seven and a half tonnes of hazelnut shells from Turkey. Wow. They, sort of a special military plane flew them over and they were pounded into a mortar and they were put under the floor. So the globe today is still on hazelnut shells. That's extraordinary. That's amazing. Yeah. That's cool. That, that is, is so cool. We sometimes need a button, like an alarm for like best fact of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. and just go, okay, we've hit best fact. Um, they used to be called hazelnuts until really recently. They used to be called filberts. Now, have you guys ever called them filberts? No. Because I was just reading an article in The Atlantic, which happened to be from 1996, and someone said, the filbert, or as people seem to be calling it these days, the hazelnut. <laughs> Newfangled nonsense. Isn't that weird? Oh, that's named after a French I, We should bring it back. Um, should we move on? Yeah, yeah. Oh, can I just mention Nutella jars? In 2015, one caused a fire. This was in Twickenham, and sun rays refracted from an empty Nutella jar that was left on a windowsill, and it burned an entire house down and killed a pet dog. So don't leave your Nutella jars out. And don't sue us, Nutella. Wow. <laughs> Anna, you've absolutely gone for it. They're Nazis. They'll burn your house down. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Chazinski. My fact is that the earliest depicted sofas were five feet high off the ground. <laughs> There's this great article in the Paris Review, which is a review of a book called Now I Sit Me Down by a guy called Witold Ribzinski. And I really want to read it. And in that, he mentions this couch, which appears in an alabaster carving from the uh, 7th century called The Garden Party. And it's from Assyria, and it shows a king reclining on a sofa, and it's five feet high. And he's got his queen slightly below him on an also quite high chair (laughs) that has a footstool to mount it. And so, yeah, uh, the earlier sofas were like that. Uh, And this was in Nineveh in 645 BC. And the height of your furniture apparently was related to where your social standing was. Uh, Do you know that the French word for sofa is canapé? So if you're in France and someone offers you a canapé, they're offering you a sofa. (laughs) Really? They're much more generous at their dinner parties, aren't they? (laughs) They gave out so many canapés. (laughs) Yeah, it's because it's a sofa for the thing to go on, isn't it? We call it that because it's like a couch for the food to sit on. What? Yeah, so the food relaxes. Traditionally, it's stale bread. Um, It's supposed to be in a canapé. And so the stale bread acts as a sofa, and then you plonk your salmon on top of it, and that's the canapé. That's oh, great. That's I so didn't cool. know that. I think you may have lost your best fact of the podcast. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> Do you know that in the um, 50s there was a trend for cardboard sofas? What? <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, um, there's an article in Popular Mechanics in 1954. It was, they called the trend paperboard furniture. 
and they were very excited about it because you could use pulp and waste paper and so it could be recycled or you could find it different ways, very lightweight. Um, and I quote, the furniture is relatively inexpensive, extremely strong and durable and can be disassembled when you move. Newlyweds can use it to bridge the gap until they can afford the kind of furniture they want for life. Wow. <laughs> so basically, wow. rather than send you a box with stuff in it, just take the box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, sofas are one of the reasons why Romans did away with cutlery for a while. So that reclining on couches became really, you know, popular and was brought from the Arabic world, the Middle East, where this original fat was from, into Europe. And the word sofa comes from an Arabic word. So the Romans started doing it. And then you're using one hand to lean on. You know, you're propped up on one elbow. And so you can only eat with one hand. And so you can't be having cutlery because it gets right in the way. It just looks so uncomfortable, the Roman way of dining, mm, where you're lying on your side on a couch with yes. a table with food on yeah. it next to you. It just looks mad. Yeah. yeah. And it takes up so much space because everyone's lying down. Yeah. So that, the theory is that that's how the Last Supper happened. Everyone was on the... F- right. Everyone was lying on their sides um, in a kind of U-shape. So you'd have about four people per side, each side of the U. But it does mean that you're facing someone's back. Yeah. They're lying oh, yeah, that's in terrible. front of you, mm. facing away from you. And the guy behind you is facing your back and trying to talk to you. And you've got someone's you're... foot in your face. <laughs> yeah. But I just think it would dep- it, you'd want to make sure you're on the right part of the room because there's this thing about if you go to sleep on your left side you're less likely to get indigestion because your food enters your esophagus so it goes that way so if you lie on your right there's one way there's one way there's one way that if you lie you can get indigestion because the food can't go in easily in one way that's easier so if you're lying on the wrong side in the room i mean lying down still not great but yeah. maybe it would be slightly more comfortable i than, think i'd wow. risk indigestion just to have a conversation with a human rather than a wall <laughs> maybe <laughs> all like in a circle but maybe or, they or all, a spiral. They all tended to lie the same way often in those paintings. Yeah. So maybe they'd crack this indigestion thing. And they were like, and they around. knew. Yeah, that's really amazing. I didn't yeah. know that. So furniture generally is quite recent. Almost all the furniture we see today. There was an article in the New York Times that was saying pretty much everything you see was invented between 1670 and 1730. So once sofas came about, like a lot of things, after ancient Rome, ancient Greece and everything fell, they just disappeared, didn't come back for ages. And things like armchairs or sofas or basically everything except just one table where you do everything and then your bed just wasn't a thing. And along with it apparently came the new sofa attitude, which was when women started being a bit sexier and more relaxed because the sofa encourages you to slightly drape yourself over it. So there's a theory that that kind of loosened up women's behaviour and morals, I think. Wow. So suddenly men around the world were going, hey, there's some <laughs> sexy ladies all of a sudden. <laughs> That's when the population started to really rise. Yes, yeah. exactly. right. Wow. <laughs> I did find out about the first man to make a chair factory. Because mm-hmm. before uh, this guy, who was called Michael Thonet, he was a French man, all chairs were lovingly handcrafted and made. Mm. He was born in 1796. And in Vienna, 40 or 50 years later, the mid-19th century, lots and lots of uh, restaurants and cafes and coffee houses are opening. Mm-hmm. And they need chairs. They need hundreds and hundreds mm. and thousands and thousands of chairs. And it's too much effort for individual <laughs> craftsmen to, to make laboriously them. carve chairs. So he had this brilliant method where he would um, cut wood into strips. Mm. He'd boil bundles of them in glue. And then he'd bend them into the shape uh, in a mold that he wanted them to be. So it's a more effective way of doing it. And then he developed ways of bending whole wood. um, Got it. You know, whole pieces of wood. So it was bending rather than jamming together, which is obviously much less labour intensive. Yeah, and then demand grew so high that he had to open five factories by the time he died. Wow. So he was a huge chair pioneer, thousands of thousands. I know it's weird to think of the first ever chair factory. Uh, Michael Thonet. 
Michael Fonnet. Yeah. yeah. But then on the very opposite for mass produced, um, do you know when Kim Kardashian and Kanye West got married, they had for their meal, they had a massive custom made marble table. And instead of place cards, they had everyone's names engraved in the marble table. Wow. But they got married in it's late. Imagine having to transport that back to California. Yeah. Wow. Imagine having a last minute seat oh, yeah, positioning so like, change. <laughs> yeah. we, we've actually fallen out. Can we sit apart? No. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, you're right. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's literally set in stone. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is Anne. My fact is that the first advert to be shown on Channel 5 was for Chanel Number no. 5. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Lovely. So nice. So very pleasing. What a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it launched on 30th of March, 1997. Um, the Spice Girls launched Channel 5, um, where they sang the song uh, 54321, but turned into 12345. Yeah. So it was ah. a night of wild entertainment. I watched it this morning because um, I've never seen it before. The, the full launch night. <laughs> yeah, do you remember it? Do you yeah, remember that yeah. time? I remember you... very excitingly people people turning up to um, rejig the TV. Yeah, because there were only four channels then. So it's like we were getting 20% more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. We were so excited about what brilliant programs Channel 5 would hold. Well, I, <laughs> Little well, did we know. <laughs> what I'd forgotten, though, was that half an hour of the lunch night was just showing trailers for shows that were coming soon. So <laughs> yes. Like, was it? Yeah. Clever. Well, the first ever advert that was um, put onto TV was in the 50s, and it was ITV's launch night. It was the first time it went on, and it was an advert for um, toothpaste, Gibbs SR toothpaste. Mm-hmm. And it's quite cool because, you know, first TV advert and already they were employing a lot of the tricks that are used in modern day adverts. So the toothbrush itself was in a big block of ice. And obviously uh, you can't use a big block of ice on a on a set, mm-hmm. you know, it'll melt too quickly. So mm-hmm. it was made out of plastic. So immediately they were using fake props to be yeah. the actual thing. Yeah, it's quite cool. But yeah, That's so really that was, uh, yeah, 60. And that was the first in the UK, wasn't it? Because there was advertising. Exactly, it was the first yeah. in the UK. Yeah. On, on I read TV. a really strange thing about advertising now and the future of it. So did you know that with um, old sitcoms, not old, but like relatively like finished sitcoms like How I Met Your Mother, what they're doing now is they're still selling advertising spots because they're going in, they're digitally altering the shows for products that came out after. Oh. <gasps> The show was made. Oh, um, yeah. So, what, so like for a film, kind of a new soft yeah, Well, drink. the example was about um, a mo- movie that came out a few years after the episodes. They changed, I think, a TV screen in a coffee shop, and they there'd be a lamp post in one scene. They put a poster for the film on the lamp post. <gasps> so they're selling this like digital space. That's so cool. In shows, I would, it would just cause me so many questions. To yeah. Work, how is how this? How did they know this film was coming out? Yeah. That's such a fun idea of updating, though. Like the way that Anna just went, "OMG!" <laughs> if like in forty years' time someone's listening to this and we digitally insert whatever the, the you know, cool PTD yeah. you know <laughs> that's not a good one what's just going to stand for what exactly uh Prime time. Time. Prime time dude. dude. Prime time dude. If we're saying that, that is not a world I want to live in. (laughs) I read a thing about the first adverts ever, Mm -hmm. but this was on Wikipedia and I haven't been able to back it up independently. But it's that the earliest adverts were in China uh, and that they were oral. So you would get bamboo flutes played to sell confectionery. Uh. I think the first advertising was sort of going around playing a flute and saying, hey, do you want to buy some sweets? Oh, so you oh, would hey. you would create a, a jingle on your flute? I think so, but I'm not sure. I think so. in the UK there was a version where they would, um, like early like sort of flyering, they would hand out um, leaflets and it would have the sheet music so you could sing the jingle to yeah, yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you could take it home and be like... That's right. <laughs> That's very funny. That's so along. weird. <laughs> Which is so funny. 
so much less appealing the idea of something being advertised by your dad kind of badly yeah. trying to interpret sheet music <laughs> I reckon we could set that um, William McGonagall Beecham thing to music yes yes you're right if it had been handed out with a flyer people would have loved it <laughs> yeah uh, do you guys know what the cheese pull is the no. cheese pull. The cheese pull, an advertising yeah. term. Okay. Uh, any guesses? Um, a cheese pull. A it's pulling like a, of cheese. Sounds like a baby bell on a string. Mm. Um, Close-ish. I think it's an advert that offers you something exciting, mm-hmm. like a cheese, mm. but then it pulls it away. So it leaves you curious and it leaves you to go and find out more about the product. These are all brilliant guesses. Uh, none of them are even close. It's, you know, <laughs> in pizza adverts when um, the pizza slice gets pulled away from the pizza and every oh, yes. pizza ad, the cheese pulls away. And that's the cheese pull. And all adverts like perfume or pizza have it. Adverts that are trying to advertise something. I've never seen a perfume that's... advert with a shot of <laughs> Pizza, pizza being slowly pulled apart. <laughs> Guys, it's it's become a metaphor for a broader advertising <laughs> technique, uh, which is basically using an image that specifically really, really triggers your different senses that aren't sight. So by visual suggestion, you see that cheese, but it triggers your sense of taste. So, and I watched a lot for this research, you desperately okay. want pizza. Because wow. there's a weird thing with perfume that you're, you're advertising something that you can't show because it's a smell. Exactly. So you can't be like... Oh, look how great it looks. Well, yeah. I guess why, why you have complicated bottles, but you yeah. you want to sort of give the vibe of what you're selling, yeah. I guess, yes. rather than the actual product. Because That's you why you need it. the cheese pull, because wow. you can't actually show a smell. Um, I found another thing about perfume. Mm. In 2014, a Californian firm announced that they were making perfume for cows. Okay. Good. Right. But for human benefit. Oh. So the idea was to make cows smell like humans. No. Yes, so mosquitoes would bite the cows instead of biting people. It's definitely going to be unintended consequences. That's so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was reading that Benjamin Franklin wanted once to invent a perfume, and it was an anus perfume. As in, what if we turned our farts into perfume? What if... What, captured them? No, no, yeah. (laughs) Although that is something that people used to do. But um, what he wanted was for scientists to focus on creating some kind of medicine that you would take that would mix with the gases that were down there so that when you did fart, it would come out with Fragrance. Chanel number no. 5. Yeah. Did he have a suggestion then? What did he No, he was asking do? for scientists to look into it. It was, But that oh, was we, his idea. We can all ask for scientists to look into stuff. <laughs> yeah, but not all of us I'm are Benjamin <laughs> Franklin. <laughs> invent this too. That's can I just say one thing, which I don't think we've ever mentioned. So the Egyptians were really into perfume. Mm. You know, we're always finding it in the tombs when we excavate them. And... Um, they thought that the, it was like the sweat of the gods and stuff. So myrrh was the sweat of the god Ra, and then a ben oil, a different perfume, was squeezed from the eye of Horus. But uh, one thing they used to do is wear perfume cones on their heads, and that's you see it in a lot of Egyptian art. Cones. And yeah, it's like a waxy like an inverted cone party hat. Cool. It's, ex- it's like a party hat, but but what it was is a wax cone, and then it had perfume on the inside. And you'd go to a banquet, and because it was quite hot in Egypt, it would melt as the banquet proceeded Aww. and release the perfume scents into the air, presumably as wax kind of rolled down your face. <laughs> 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 and then like dried <laughs> yeah. like, in your hair dried and congealed in your hair it's like why spray it on yourself when you can bring the bottle with you yeah. <laughs> you are the perfume bottle you are yeah. feel the perfume <laughs> be the perfume you are the perfume <laughs> 
Um, I have a couple of Chanel facts. Yeah, go for it. So Coco Chanel, I didn't know this, wasn't called Coco or Chanel on her birth certificate. Really? Really? Yeah, so her first name is Gabrielle. Coco is a nickname. And her surname is Chanel, but it was originally spelled with an S before the end. So Chasnel? Chasnel. It's got a different ring to it. It's not not as chic, is it? Yeah. Chasnel number five. (laughs) Chasnel from Wolverhampton. (laughs) Um, And then it takes, um, so for a 30 milliliter bottle of the perfume, it takes a thousand jasmine flowers and 12 roses which is a lot into one wee bottle and I like a lot if you shop at Chanel often enough you get your own custom mannequin made to your exact proportions <laughs> so they can make you clothes no way and I can't imagine how what? much money you need to spend before you're at mannequin level oh I thought you meant that they made you a custom mannequin so that they can practice spraying the perfume on you oh for the, sorry, for so the clothes measure the dimensions of your neck <laughs> to make sure yeah. that it'll, it's right for you sorry as a design house sorry they yeah. have the mannequin wow. they make um, other things I think, I, I, I think perfume's kind of a one size fits all <laughs> generally yeah. <laughs> I'll have an XL, please. <laughs> oh, I was... A cow to cover in it. So. <laughs> uh, I was reading about uh, the making of Chanel Number no. Five, its mm. origins. So it was this guy who uh, created fragrances called Ernest Bow. And when he was presenting his um, his scents to Coco Chanel, he had numerous scents that he wanted to show her, he, and he numbered them number one to number five, and then there was a second batch, which was number 20 to 24, and she went through and she picked number five because that was the best one. What um, happened to batches 6 to 19? Because that's what I wanted. Yeah, exactly, and he never used to smell when he was creating the perfumes he mm. did it all basically like a mathematical formula oh, he, really? he knew the smells and he knew the combinations so well that he just used to write the recipes and he said it's like writing music each component has a definite tonal value i can compose a waltz or a funeral march um, that's quite beautiful yeah. yeah like playing with smells well what is a good smell it's well, all well, bullshit isn't it what <laughs> I mean, there's no smell to this case. It's just silly, flowery smell. Rounding off today's lawsuit challenge (laughs) with it's all bullshit to the makers of Chanel. Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with us about any of the things we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. Anne. At Miller underscore Anne. And Chazinski. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account at No Such Thing, or you can go to our brand new Twitter account, which is at PTD Facts. Uh, <laughs> it's all the most PTD facts you'll ever see on the internet. Or you can go to our Facebook group, uh, No Such Thing as a Fish, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We have everything up there from links to our upcoming book, to our tour, to all the previous episodes. Enjoy it. We'll be back again next week. We'll see you then. Goodbye.